Let's pray. God, we thank you for another Lord's Day. Uh, we love to gather as your people. Uh, we love to be your people, and it's especially good to, to gather as a church uh, to officially represent you, uh, to be the visible expression of, of your people who will assemble around your throne one day. So God, I pray that you'd be honored by the way that we um, talk about you, think about you, sing to you, pray to you uh, today. God, I pray especially during this time that you would help me to be clear and efficient in my words. And I pray that you would uh, lift our minds and our hearts uh, towards you, uh, considering the way that the way that you have sent your son to save us and to be uh, your king. We pray this all in his name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I should let one of you guys do this introduction, but uh, any volunteers? Brief introduction to the series? No? Okay. No. All right. Well, we are nearing the end of a series on the offices of Christ. Uh, which is threefold, threefold office of the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king. We are in the middle of exploring what it means that Christ fills the office of king. And last time we didn't get as far as I had hoped, but uh, by God's grace we have another Lord's Day to keep going. The office of king in the Bible is so prominent, uh, and there are so many layers to it. So it's, it's difficult to know how to um, catch all of the data in a meaningful way, uh, but we're trying here. Okay, so brief review, uh, functions of king in the Bible. The king is a ruler. You could also say the king is a judge in the sense that he administers justice. Uh, he rules over his kingdom in peace and equity and righteousness. And the king also thereby, through his just rule... Um, secures divine blessing and prosperity for his kingdom, both the subjects of his kingdom, the people there, and also the realm of his kingdom, uh, the land over which his, uh, his rule is expressed. King is also a deliverer in the Bible, one who accomplishes deliverance by defeating the enemies of his people, and one who preserves that deliverance, securing protection and rest. And the king is also a representative in the Bible. Uh, as the king goes, so too his people. Uh, the obedience and disobedience of the king in the Bible is counted as true of his people. Um, and, and not just in, uh, in a counting sense, but also actually the people follow the king into obedience and out of um, obedience. We talked about this idea of corporate solidarity or corporate headship or corporate representation where the head of a people, uh, and usually a king, um, he represents his people so that whatever is true of him is also, in God's eyes, true of those that are represented. We also looked at God's requirements for a king, and we'll open by uh, reviewing this. Open to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Mainly because last time when we read through these requirements... Uh, I was setting you up for something that we didn't get to. 
so he's going to have to set you up again. You were walking into a trap. Let's see. Turn these pages. <clears throat> Does anyone need a handout? Uh, that would be very helpful to you to have one. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 17. Starting in vor verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. First requirement of God's king must be divinely appointed. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So three things God um, detailed as a quintessential expression of faithlessness to him. If you're the king, don't heap up for yourself silver and gold. Don't heap up for yourself wives, especially those who will turn your heart away from the Lord. And don't heap up for yourself horses, especially from Egypt. Verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So he's to make his own handwritten copy of the Bible. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So to be God's king, to be king over God's people, you have to be divinely appointed. Uh, you have to be a humble servant of the people. You can't have an, a, a heart exalted above your brothers, one who, that's, that's part of the condemnation of acquiring silver and gold and horses, that, that you're exploiting the people for personal gain. Um, and of course, you must be a faithful servant of the Lord. Uh, have be a man of the law, a man of Torah. Write a copy of the Bible and keep it with you and, and read in it all the days of your life, acknowledging that God is truly the king of his people. And then that beautiful um, phrase at the end, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. Uh, if a king does not fulfill these requirements, he will not have an enduring reign over God's people. We also began to trace out last time the promise of a king that God will raise up. And a little summary I wrote on your handout. God promises to raise up an ultimate deliverer, a righteous representative and ruler for his people. And God will use this promised one to restore his blessing upon man and upon man's realm, the earth. 
this promised king will be, as we saw, a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, Israel, of Judah, and we began to talk about of David as well. We won't take the time to review these scriptures, but um, if you weren't here last week, it's a glorious study to see um, the promises of this king in those verses that I've provided in the way that it talks about how God will use this king from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Uh, and essentially, right, God said that there would be a lion-like figure from the tribe of Judah or a star that rises out of Israel, a righteous son of David. He'll hold the scepter and rule as king forever. He will crush the head of the serpent. Remember Numbers 22 um, uh, meshed together that promise in the garden that one would come from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent with, with the coming king in Israel. Numbers 24. Um, this king will defeat all of the enemies of God's people. He will put an end to sin and reverse all of sin's effects, death and the curse upon creation. So, so under the reign of this king, God's blessing will return to men from every nation on the earth and the earth itself will be restored. Uh, as if it is a new creation-wide Garden of Eden. And, and again, the way that the scriptures um, provide the data that can be summarized as I've just done is just glorious. So please do go review those scriptures if, if you didn't hear them last time. Uh, in many ways, the centerpiece of this great hope for coming king is the covenant God made with David. That's where we left off last time. So turn back to 2 Samuel 7. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to point out that David, generally speaking, fulfills God's requirements for a king. He is, of course, divinely appointed. God tells uh, Saul, through Samuel, that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And then when he's anointed, uh, when David's anointed in 1 Samuel 16... God says, I have provided for myself a king. Uh, he's also generally a faithful servant of God. Of course, that's captured in the expression that David is a man after God's own heart, which uh, the book of Acts um, goes on to explain means that he, he is willing to do God's will, Acts 13, 22. And looking back on the life of David, consistently, consistently, uh, the perspective is that David walked in the ways of the Lord and kept his commandments. And later kings are encouraged repeatedly, be like David, walk after me like David did. And David is a humble servant of the people. Uh, if you asked me, uh, if you said, here's a little Bible trivia, fill in the blank. The Bible says that the meekest man an Old Testament figure, the meekest man in all the earth is, if I didn't know that Numbers said that about Moses, I would probably say David. David shows astonishing humility and meekness. Um, we talked about this a little last time about how he is the anti-Saul. Saul visibly expresses the mighty one who is exalted in the eyes of men. Um, David visibly, clearly, by contrast, represents the humble one, the one who's lowly esteemed in the eyes of men, whom God will exalt. Uh, David 
repeatedly refuses to assert himself to become king. Repeatedly. And even after he becomes king, and a conspiracy rises up against him, and he's driven out of his palace, out of Jerusalem, he essentially says, let, let God do what seems good to him, to me. Maybe this is from the Lord. Um, such a humble servant of the people. Or, or at the end of his life, right, there's one great sin, the sin with Bathsheba, and he murders her husband. But then later on, there's another really uh, grave sin that David commits. He issues a census and, and proudly, um, contrary to the Lord's uh, desire of him, counts the people in his reign and because of this uh, the Lord sends pestilence through an angel and thousands of Israelites start dying because of God's divine wrath on the people because of David's sin and David in 2 Samuel 27 sees this uh, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said behold I have sinned and I have done wickedly but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So you, I think that captures nicely David's humble concern for the people. He even calls them sheep, uh, taking responsibility for them as a good shepherd. And did you hear even desiring to himself be harmed instead of them? Ultimately, of course, David does not perfectly fulfill these requirements. Um, as we talked about, the sin with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, this census. And so uh, the greatness of David's kingdom, which, which he is established as a kind of um, uh, prefiguring this great king that would come from his line. Um, God says in 2 Samuel 8, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel. David administered justice and equity to all his people. 2 Samuel 8, 14. So, so it sounds like um, David's the real deal, right? But after this sin with Bathsheba, uh, the greatness of his kingdom slowly uh, declines over time. Um, and even though David does respond with humble repentance... It's clear that David does not finally meet the requirements for God's forever king. But even before this happened, of course, David knew that he himself would not be the king who reigns forever in God's kingdom because God had told him that it would be one of his sons, 2 Samuel 7. Hope you're there. Let's read again and this time talk about the covenant God makes with David. And essentially, the rest of Sunday school and much, much of the rest of the Bible is God fulfilling this promise to David. You cannot understand the prophets. Really, you can't understand the New Testament unless you understand this promise to David and how God raises up Jesus to fulfill it. It is all over the Bible as I intend to show you. And it, it's, it, 
so much peppered through the Bible that it will probably wear you out um, how many places I'm going to show you. All right. So we've got to get moving for me to wear you out in that way. 2 Samuel 7. So this starts, David says, I want to build the Lord a temple. I want to build the Lord a house to dwell in. Um, a, a permanent structure to replace this tabernacle, which is you know, a, a temporary structure, essentially. A portable building that, uh, in which the Lord is making his manifest presence um, realized amongst the people. So uh, the Lord counters and says, no, no. No, you won't build me a house, a dwelling place, but I will build you a house, a dynasty. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, the Lord speaking to Nathan, who's going to deliver this divine word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. That you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. And be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke uh, to David. So if I can summarize the promises God makes here. God promises to first, we saw, give David a great name. Uh, and this is one signal, among others, that we should connect this covenant God is making with David to the covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis 12. That, that's one of the first promises to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, which later we learn will also include great kings. And I will give to you a great name. And through you, uh, the, the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So uh, the promise to Abraham, great name, blessing to all the earth, uh, will especially be focused on this Davidic king. And we already saw this in Numbers 24 where God tied the promise of universal blessing, worldwide blessing, promised to Abraham to this king that would come out of Israel and from the line of Judah. This king will accomplish deliverance and rest for his people. Uh, God will establish a dynasty for David that won't end. He said one of David's offspring will be king forever. Man, how many times did the word forever 
come in uh, that covenant. Numerous times is the answer. He will be a beloved son of God. Uh, and, and this means several things. There are many layers to this. One, of course, it means that, that this figure will be closely associated with the Lord. He will have a very intimate relationship with him. Um, it, it also means that this king will have a representative role. Uh, because previously, the one who has been identified as God's son is all of Israel. When God sent Moses to, to Pharaoh um, in Exodus 4.22, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And of course, in Hosea 11, which, which the New Testament says, hey, this is Jesus. Um, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Talking about the Exodus uh, considering all of Israel his son. Well, this Davidic king then will represent all of the nation as God's son. And so, so in the New Testament where it says when Jesus goes down to Egypt and, and to avoid being killed by Herod and then comes out, well, Jesus is identified as this uh, representative son of the nation of Israel. Of course, another aspect of the fact that, that David's, the king in David's line is considered a son is that he will be disciplined. And this, this made some of you uncomfortable because I'm, I'm reading these promises and you think, oh, this is great. Jesus is going to reign forever. This is talking about Jesus. Oh, this is great. Jesus is going to defeat all of God's enemies. This is wonderful. Jesus, yay. Oh, when he sins, God's going to discipline him? Well, that's awkward, right? This is talking about Jesus. Um, well, what, what it says next, I think, clarifies. And that he says, when this son of David sins, he will not cast him off. This will be fatherly discipline. So the previous kingship, which was Saul, when Saul sinned, uh, God said, your throne will not be established. You will not have a dynasty that will endure. Well, in contrast, whenever a king from the line of David sins, he will be disciplined. And that is, that it won't negate God's promise to establish the throne of David. So really, what we see in, the, in that line, that, that the Davidic king will be disciplined when he sins, is just saying that, that even in making this promise to David, that the requirements of Deuteronomy 17 are not overturned. If a king will reign forever, he must be a righteous king. He must be a faithful servant of the Lord. And so this promise to David, and, and we're going to see this in a really pronounced way in a little bit in Solomon's life. This promised king in David's line, for this word to be fulfilled, is conditional upon the obedience of a king from the line of David. But... The fact that God considers the one who holds this office a son means that the disobedience of any particular Davidic king won't uh, sink the Titanic. It won't overturn God's promises. Okay, So it's unconditional in the sense that God will fulfill these promises. Conditional in the sense that it will take a righteous king to fulfill these promises. You put those things together, 
God promises to provide a righteous king from the line of David to fulfill the conditions to ensure that this promise is fulfilled. And David expresses hope for God's king in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, two of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament, especially uh, with respect to Jesus' kingship. In Psalm 2, David, David, um, I'll start at verse 6. As for me, this is the Lord speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, so this, this king in the line of David will not just rule over Israel, but all the nations in the end, it says, kiss the son, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So David, David expresses hope that this king who comes, who, who will be installed as God's son, will be a refuge of blessing for anyone who will bow to him from the nations. And he will utterly destroy uh, his enemies who are the Lord's enemies. Um, back, up, back up one one point on your outline. I did want to mention also that uh, an important part of the Davidic covenant is God says, no, David, you won't build me a temple, but your son will. One of your offspring who will reign will. Um, so the, there will be a king from the line of David who establishes a dwelling place for God am amongst his people. You could say there will be a king who comes from the line of David that makes it true that God can be called Emmanuel. God is with us. God dwells among us. Um, the king will be used to establish the reality that God is, is manifestly present amongst his people. Okay, fast forward back to where we were. Psalm 110, uh, David Mork more expressing hope for this greater son of his in a verse that is all over the New Testament. Psalm 110, 1, the Lord says to my Lord, and Jesus points this out, doesn't he? He said, uh, who, who will the king in Israel be? And the Pharisees say, David's son. He says, well, if he's David's son, then why does David call him Lord? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Wow. So the throne of this king will be um, at the right hand of God. And until I make your enemies your footstool. So he will rule unopposed. Everything will be put in subjection to him. Um, if we had time, we could read the rest of this psalm. It continues to express this hope for this king and this son like the psalm says, hail to the Lord's anointed. If anyone knows that song, great David's greater son. David expresses hope for him. Uh, as we continue reading in the biblical storyline, Solomon obviously uh, comes next in the succession, reigns after David, and it really seems that Solomon might be this promised one. When Solomon takes the throne, David... Uh, instructs him, and in 1 Kings 2, you basically hear the requirements of Deuteronomy 17. David says, be like that king. I indicated, wow, is Solomon the one? Well, I think the Bible intentionally leads us to believe that that might be the case. 
Um, in 1 Chronicles 22, 6 and following, David called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Listen to this, verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he, who? Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. He, Solomon, shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his, Solomon's, royal throne in Israel forever. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? David reflects on this a few chapters later. Of all my sons, he has chosen Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. God said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. And when we start to read through Solomon's life, he really seems to fulfill a lot of the promises God made. Uh, he, of course, is the chosen son to succeed David. Solomon does accomplish deliverance and rest for God's people. Solomon builds the Lord a temple, does he not? Solomon's greatness is unsurpassed. He excels all of the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. First um, Kings 4 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea under his reign. So it seems like the blessing promised to Abraham is being fulfilled under Solomon. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms. It seems like to him is the obedience of the peoples. Um, wow. His reign will not endure if he is not a righteous son. Look at this, the contingency of the covenant. This is so prominent. In 1 Kings 1, when David charges Solomon, he says, uh, keep the charge of the Lord as it's written in Moses. 1 Kings 1, 4, so that... The Lord may establish his word. He spoke concerning me. Solomon, obey so that God can fulfill his promise to me. Saying, if, as a big if, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And the Lord speaks this directly to Solomon, 1 Kings 6, verse 12. Concerning this house you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And the Lord appears to Solomon a second time in 1 Kings 9, and he says the same thing. If you will walk before me as David, your father, walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all I have commanded you, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. 
as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So the contingency of, of God fulfilling his promise to have a forever king in David's line is so clear, is so clear. He must obey. He must be righteous. And Solomon's not the one. Turn to 1 Kings 10. Hopefully this makes reviewing Deuteronomy 17 worth it. Here's the trap I was leading you to. <clears throat> it's a wonderful trap, though. There's, there's food for your soul in here. <clears throat> Look at verse 23. Uh, starts on a note of, of Solomon being established as great in the kingdom. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. So you see the nations coming to take refuge, as it were, in this, this king from David. Verse 26, this is uh-oh time. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. And the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all of the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So, so Solomon is accumulating for himself a lot of silver and gold. He's accumulating for himself a lot of horses, especially from Egypt. There's a one shoe left to drop right, and that's accumulating for himself many wives and... 11.1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sid Sidonian, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods, after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines, and his hearts turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. This is unthinkable, isn't it? Then Solomon built, a, the man who built the temple, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Uh, so there could not be a more clear, in light of Deuteronomy 17, a more clear expression of disqualification to be the Lord's king. He did exactly 
what the Lord said a king cannot do so that his reign might endure long in Israel. And the Lord rejects him and says, since this has been your practice, you've not kept my covenant, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Wow, this, that's the same kind of language that was used uh, towards Saul. I will tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Solomon himself, though, expresses hope for God's king. Uh, Psalm 72. This is beautiful. Uh, he says, give the king your justice. and uh, May he judge your people with righteousness, the poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance. So may, this, may a king come who will be a just and equitable ruler who will bring pre- peace and deliverance. Uh, verse 8, may you have dominion from sea to sea, from the river, one boundary of Israel, to the ends of the earth. May this king come who will reign not just over Israel, but over all the earth. May all kings fall down before him. Verse 16, may there, may there be an abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. So under this king's reign, there's this restoration of creation itself. May his name endure forever. May people be blessed in him. Again, the promise to Abraham will come through this king. Solomon himself is expressing hope for. uh, That the peoples of the earth will be blessed under him. Uh, And of course, things, things just go downhill from here in the line of David. Uh, Rehoboam and Solomon, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and he's rejected. um, Also from being king over all 12 tribes, and 10 of the tribes go form their own kingdom under Jeroboam, uh, and that is a serious um, chopping down of this kingship, but God says that, that I'm for the sake of my servant David. And for the sake of Jerusalem, where I've established my name, I'm, I'm going to not totally cut down your kingdom. Right? You see that? How God disciplined the Davidic dynasty and didn't cast them off altogether. Um, and, and I want to point this out. I think this is wonderful. In 1 Kings 12, 7, 1 Kings 12, 7, uh, the people advise Rehoboam about what kind of king he should be. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people... And serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. I think that beautifully captures God's ideal for his king, right? That the king would be a servant to the people, and that the people in turn would willingly be servants of the king. I hope your mind went to Jesus there. Finally, uh, the king's. The kingship in Jerusalem comes to the end. There's exile. The last king uh, who sits on the throne in Jerusalem from the line of David, king of Babylon, comes and uh, kills his sons in front of his eyes and then plucks his eyes out and then takes him in change to Babylon. Well, that's a pretty humiliating end to the Davidic dynasty, right? What, where are God's promises to David now? There is a ray of hope. After this, um, a king, Jehoiachin, remains imprisoned in uh, Babylon. And right at the very end, it says he's led out of prison and treated with favor. 
in Babylon. There's a ray of hope. Ah, ah, maybe God's not done with his promise to David. And the prophets are full of a hope that God will make good on his promises and raise up a king. Isaiah 9, a child will be born, to us a son will be given, the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Uh, so the stump of Jesse, Jesse's David's father. If you picture the, the Davidic dynasty as a tree, well, in exile, that tree is chopped down, is it not? There's nothing left of God's promises to David except just a stump. But you see the picture, a, a shoot's going to burst forth from that stump. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Um, verse 4, with righteousness this shoot will judge the poor. We will decide with equity for the meek of not just Israel, but the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Deliverance. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. He will be a righteous king in the line of David. And his reign will lead to a restoration of creation. That's what it says next. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. And uh, the cow and the bear will get together. And likewise, the lion and the ox. And the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. Uh, probably a reversal of, of the Garden of Eden. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Ultimate rest for God's people. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. So after talking about the restoration of creation that will come in under this reign, um, and, and the righteous and righteousness and equity and peace and deliverance that this king will administer over all the earth. At the beginning of that section, he's called a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And at the end, he's called the root of David. Incredible stuff. <laughs> Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's what we need, isn't it? A righteous branch. A righteous king from the line of David. In his days Judah will be saved. And this is the name by which he, this righteous king, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And that promise is repeated in chapter 33. Ezekiel, the same promise. Um, I will rescue my flock. They will no longer be a prey. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. The other prophets, Amos 9, I'm going to raise up the booth of David that's fallen. Isaiah 3, Micah 2, it keeps coming. These, these promises, Zechariah 9, Daniel, God's going to uh, 
send a kingdom that, that puts an end to and replaces all the kingdoms of the earth and it will last forever. Daniel 7 is important. Uh, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's a phrase to hang on to. One like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this, this forever king in Daniel is referred to as one like a son of man. Psalm 89 powerfully expresses hope for this Davidic king, and, and I put it as somewhat of a transition to fulfillment because the whole thing is about God's steadfast love to David and his faithfulness to David, and God will do what he promised and then at the end, the psalmist says, but you're not. You're not. And he says, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Jesus shows up, and that's the first thing we hear about him in the New Testament. In Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Son of David. And then um, Matthew right, has this genealogy. And at the end he says, oh, and so you see that there's 14 generations between Abraham and David. And 14 generations from David to the deportation of exile. And 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. And you're like, okay, well, that's what? That's neat. Uh, thanks. That is interesting. Why is that important? Well, uh, the Hebrew alphabet was used for numbers as well. Like you think of Roman numerals, okay. And so if you take David's name, in Hebrew, the numeric value of David's name is 14. So what Matthew is saying here, he's saying, David, David, David. That's what you should have in your mind, this one who's coming, Jesus. And at the end, Jesus is called the Christ. He is the anointed one, the anointed king after David and like David. Luke 1, promise of his birth, he will be great, will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Zechariah's prophecy, God raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Luke 2, the angels announced, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, who is Christ, that is who is the anointed one, who is God's anointed king, Christ the Lord. And wise men come, hey, Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? And here it says, let me ask my guys. Hey, where is the Christ? Christ, the one who's coming as king, the anointed one. Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water in Matthew 3 in a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Oh, oh, the son of God. That should not only make you think Trinity, that should make you think covenant with David. And Jesus starts his ministry by saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes throughout all Galilee. And he teaches in their synagogues. And it, he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. He says that in Matthew 4. And then in Matthew 9. Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And all in between. He's doing these mighty signs. Which, which the Old Testament indicated that the coming of the kingdom uh, would, would be accompanied by these signs. He's, he's exercising dominion over creation. Multiplying bread calming storms, raising the dead. 
He's, exer- he's defeating the enemies of God's people, casting out Satan and demons. And he even says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit, then the kingdom of God is among you. So these signs that Jesus uh, is accomplishing, they, they prefigure the ultimate defeat of, of evil and, and sin and the restoration of all of creation when the kingdom comes in full. And so why were those signs happening at the beginning? Well, because the kingdom was dawning in Jesus, because God's king in the line of David had shown up. Of course, he asks uh, in, in chapter 16 of Matthew, uh, who do you say I am? And uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Well, who is the anointed son of God? That's the king coming in the line of David. Uh, Jesus, whenever he's going into Jerusalem in chapter 21, he says, uh, uh, guys, go get uh, a young donkey and um, bring it here, and I'm going to ride on it into Jerusalem. And that's not just because he was tired. That's because um, he, he initiated this, this parable, this visible picture, to show that he was the king coming in the line of David because Zechariah 9, which we didn't read, had said, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so the disciples go and do this um, as Jesus had directed them, it said. Jesus wanted to make it clear, go get this colt because I want to make it clear to you and to everyone who will believe in me after you on account of your word that I am this king. And as he rides in, the people throw down their cloaks, and what do they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. In Mark, they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And of course, on the cross, right, this ironically is when Jesus is recognized, quote unquote, in the most direct way as the king over Israel, is he not? He's given a cloak, he's given a reed as a scepter, He's given a crown of thorns. They mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they take the scepter and they strike him and they spit on him. And even on the cross as he's hanging there, um, right, right, well, before, before he hangs there, Pilate announces dramatically to Israel, Behold your king. Pilate, when he's before the high priest, the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. Tell us if you're the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Using the language of Daniel 7. Say, I'm, I am the son of man from Daniel 7. I am the Christ, the son of God. And of course, when, when he's on the cross and the chief priests and scribes and elders they mock him they say he saved others he can't save himself he's the king of israel he says i am the son of god he says the robbers who crucified him also revile him in this way can you imagine being executed and and turning and mocking the person being executed next to you as being uh the fake king of the Jews? Well, Jesus uh, reigns even from the cross because this robber, one of the robbers who's mocking him, has a change of heart. Or God changes his heart. 
And one of these mockers stops uh, ridiculing him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, the king, reigning even from the cross, says, today you will be with me in paradise. Operating the keys of David, saying, I, I decide who gets in and out of the kingdom. I am the king, and you'll be there. And then Jesus rises from the dead, says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The apostles proclaim this, Peter in Acts 2, Paul in Acts 13, James in Acts 15. And they all, they all um, <coughs> take pains to point out that Jesus is the one who's come in the line of David. And in Jesus' resurrection, they talk about Jesus' exaltation. And by that they mean Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God. That through this especially resurrection of Christ... God has finally shown him that he is the king who will reign forever after the line of David. That, that is the installment of Christ formally as the Davidic king. And even in Acts 15, when Gentiles start coming into the church and they start receiving the Holy Spirit, and uh, the Jewish leaders of the church are like, whoa, is this okay? Um, James says, well, consider this. Consider that Amos said... I will rebuild the tent that the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. So I'll bring a Davidic king back and fulfill my promises. What will happen in his day, verse 17? That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So James says, look, all these Gentiles are coming to the Lord. Well, of course. God said he would do this whenever he raised up and repaired the throne of David. In 2 Timothy 2, other important pertinent passages, uh, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This is a part of Paul's gospel. Jesus is the risen son of David. Romans 1, much the same thing. Uh, Ephesians 1, Jesus, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, Psalm 110, 1, the Davidic king, in the heavenly places. And it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In Revelation, ooh, Revelation 1, 5, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. Psalm 89, which we didn't read. Uh, says, I'm going to make the son of David who comes, I'm going to make him the firstborn. That is, I'm going to make them the highest of the kings of the earth. Uh, in 3.7, he's called the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. In 5.5, 5, he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah, fulfilling uh, Genesis 19. The root of David, also. Um, he, and in, in 22.16, that's repeated. He says, I am the root and the descendant. Of David, which is beautiful, and uh, fulfilling Isaiah 11, right? And the bright morning star, fulfilling Numbers 24, a star will rise out of Jacob and he will reign. In, in 1916, dramatically, he is clearly the king of kings. We must stop. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you uh, for the way that you have exalted your son as king. We bow to him, acknowledge him, we take refuge in him, and our trust is that in accordance with your word, we are blessed.
in him. Thank you for transferring us into his kingdom. We pray this in his name. Amen.